In the last few months, the cost of renting has been back in the headlines as cities around the country experience rises of as much as 40%. It's getting more and more expensive to get that roof over your head. Rent prices continue to climb nationwide, including here in the Portland metro area. Sarah Hooks and her husband and two-year-old daughter had to move back in with her family due to their rent increase. Well, dramatic turnaround for the city's rental market. Some boroughs roaring back to pre-pandemic levels, some even topping. In Manhattan and New York City, for example, where rents plunged during the pandemic, the median rent hit an average of nearly 3,400 a month in December. That's more than 20% up on the year before and the highest rate ever recorded for that time of year. It's all over the country, too, and these rises aren't expected to slow down anytime soon. Some people say out of control rents are pushing them out of Tampa and in some cases into homelessness. On this episode of BizNow Reports, we're talking about just what exactly is driving this sudden rise and what should be done about it. I'm Miriam Hall, BizNow's New York City reporter. Any issue in the economy right now, you could trace back to housing, whether it's income inequality or climate change or how much disposable income people have. It goes back to housing. That's Daryl Fairweather. She's the chief economist at brokerage firm Redfin. She says money flowing through the economy from stimulus and extra savings through the pandemic, mixed with the widespread interest in better homes, is pushing up demand for all types of housing, both for sale and renting. Plus, millennials and Gen Zers are moving out, striking out on their own, which means more people are in the market. And it's all happening now because mortgage forbearance and eviction moratoriums have lifted. As of December of 2021, rents for listed apartments were up 14%. You have to kind of take that into context. So we're not talking about people who are renewing leases. We're not talking about people who are still in the same apartment and haven't even been up for a lease renewal yet. We're talking about listed rentals. And those do tend to be more expensive, especially in a place like Austin. So in Austin, rents a listed rents are up 40%. Plenty of people from San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York are moving in. And they're the kind of people who would demand more luxury housing. And the new buildings that are on the market there are these luxury high rises. So they're going to be more expensive. So part of it is skewed a little bit higher uh, because we're only capturing listed rents. But the overall picture, I think, is the same, that rents are going up very quickly. Is there any indication that this might slow down this year? It's really hard to say. So one reason I think rents have a lot more room to grow is that mortgage rates on the for sale market are increasing, and that's going to make buying a home more expensive, and it's going to encourage more people to continue renting, even if they ideally would like to buy a home. Another factor that could drive up rents is that wages are increasing, and if people just have more money overall, that's more money flowing through the economy that would end up somewhat in rents. So I'll have to think through exactly where I think rents are going to end up, but I think that there is reason to believe that this is not the end of steep rent increases. Where are we seeing the biggest rent rises across the country? Austin is a big one. It's been a huge migration destination. Florida as well. Plenty of people retired early. So people moving from New York to Florida 
early retirement, they, they may be taking up a rental instead of buying a home, and that's causing rent demand to really increase. And then New York as well. New York is a bit of a different story. In New York, during the pandemic, rents were low. They were flat in many cases, or landlords were offering concessions, but that's pretty much over. And now we're seeing a big recovery to kind of make up for that lost time when rents were not increasing. So a lot of it is being driven by where people are moving, how migration is happening across the country. With the pandemic, remote work has become the norm, which means that you can keep your job, keep your salary for the most part, and move somewhere much more affordable. But what happens is that in those previously affordable places, like in Texas or in Florida, all this extra money is flowing in from people with these tech remote jobs and that increases demand for housing and it can be it can have some pretty harsh consequences for the long-term residents who now are competing for rentals against people who have much more money than the people who normally are in the market for rentals so where are the areas that we should be most concerned about that because that is a growing concern across the country is people being displaced rents going up too high for people who've lived there for a long time it's a big problem pretty much along the Sun Belt. So Austin, Florida, Phoenix is another one where I think we'll see more rent increases. Atlanta, we could see more rent increases. There's been inflation across the country. It's interesting because most of the inflation is concentrated in these migration destinations because the reason you have inflation is because of extra money and the money isn't really flowing evenly in the country right now. It's it's pouring out of places like California and New York into these more affordable Sun Belt areas. It's funny you mentioned Phoenix because I feel like Phoenix came up a million times when I was covering the investment sales market. People are saying we're not interested in buying, you know, big commercial properties anymore in places like New York. We're all looking to Phoenix. One thing we've noticed as well during the pandemic is that investor market share for buying homes has increased. A lot of these investors are taking homes that would have otherwise been on the for sale market, converting them into rentals. That increases the stock of rentals, which actually would stabilize rents in a way. Um, But it really is in response to the fact that people can't afford homes and are stuck renting. And a lot of people are in that boat right now. We're talking about people like Blackstone, for example, buying up big swathes of of rental properties. You know, the way they kind of pitch it is it's like a lifestyle choice. (laughs) Choice is a subjective term, I would say. (laughs) Choice, only option, I'm not sure. What about construction? Uh, Where are we seeing construction happening, uh, if anywhere, and where are we seeing that link to rental prices? Construction is happening where the land is readily available. And the good news is, is that these Sunbelt areas do have more abundant land where they can build out and build more housing to meet this demand. It takes time and there's also supply chain issues in the in, in new construction. It's hard to get a hold of materials. It's hard to get labor right now because of the labor shortage. So unfortunately, there's not enough construction to fully meet demand, but the builders are building as much as they can and at least it's helping a bit. Is there anything else that's being done across the country that is helping drive up construction? For example, in New York, they talk a lot about loosening rezoning rules. Mm -hmm. I don't really know or think that that has um, resulted in a spike in construction, things like um, tax incentives. Is there any place in the country that has tried something different and it's actually working yet? So California eliminated single family zoning. You can build duplexes or multiplexes on any lot in theory, but it's actually facing a lot of local opposition. 
Another thing that California has done is they have made it much easier to build an ADU, an additional dwelling unit. Another word for that is like a granny flat. It's like a little bungalow that goes in your backyard and that creates more housing as well. It's going to take time for that to really show up. And again, we're up against the challenge of not enough materials, not enough labor to really build out all the supply that we would need. It's interesting that you mentioned that opposition because it's a big thing right across the country and it only seems like it's intensifying. I imagine that's intensifying because the need is intensifying as well. I think we're going to see a lot more battles, especially at a local level. There was a story recently about a neighborhood in California that's trying to declare themselves a mountain lion habitat so they don't have to put in so they don't have to put in these multifamily homes, but that really doesn't make any sense at all. If they really wanted to protect mountain lions, they would want more multifamily housing so we don't keep sprawling out into these rural areas where their territory is. So I think that we're going to see a lot of homeowners who are very resistant to multifamily housing pulling out all the stops and all the legal arguments to stop multifamily housing from going in. I don't personally understand the logic, but there are people who are very opposed to multifamily housing they don't like how it changes the neighborhood character. Sometimes that's just code for it brings in the wrong kind of people, lower income people, lower class people. And classism is always going to be a really hot button issue, especially in the United States. We're going to see a lot more of these battles moving forward because the problem's getting really intense. And it's not like before, I think it was something that the middle class could kind of ignore. It wasn't their problem, but there wasn't affordable housing for lower income people. But now middle class people can't buy a home because they're being competed against by people coming with all cash offers, you know, multiple offers on a home, home selling for $50,000 above asking. It's just getting so intense that I think people are starting to understand the severity of the problem. It's funny because throughout the whole of the pandemic, I feel there was so much discussion about, um, you know, as we return out of the crisis, having a more fair, more equal um, society, making our cities more livable, making people feel like they had a seat at the table. This doesn't feel like it's a great place to start with a crushing rent rise and disputes about how we should get out of it. Yeah, I think that it's easy to to say that you're in favor of reducing inequality and it's harder to actually make a change in your own neighborhood, but that's what's necessary. And it's very similar to the climate debate. Like it's easy to point to somebody else and say, you reduce your carbon emissions. It's hard to do that for yourself. And that's that's actually directly related to housing because dense housing is green housing. So I think we're going to see a lot more of these debates about local control and whose responsibility is it to reduce inequality and reduce the impacts of climate change. What do you think about new laws that would cap rents and measures that various lawmakers around the country are taking to address this housing crisis? I think that those types of stopgaps are actually counterproductive because they don't solve the underlying problem. The underlying problem is that we don't have enough housing. And if you start putting rent caps and price controls on the market, it just kind of kicks the can down the road and makes the problem worse because we're not solving that problem. They're not being enough housing. Um, Another, I guess, alleviation to this problem is that we are seeing a lot of migration right now. We have a really tight labor market. So one thing that I think is just a, a silver lining is that even if somebody can't afford a home in the city that they live in, it's never been a better time to move to a new part of the country where homes are more affordable. We talked a little bit about how that's a problem for the locals there, but if you are mobile, I think that gives you a lot more opportunity to find something affordable than if you're stuck in place. And if you have that 
opportunity, I think you should take advantage of it. Another policy that could help with the housing affordability crisis is increasing property taxes. It's a bit counterintuitive because higher property taxes like add more housing costs to homeowners. But what helps is that people are less incentivized to stay in the same place for as long. It encourages people to move to a new home, especially people who are on the brink of retirement. Maybe they're in a three bedroom home that they don't need all that space anymore. If we increase property taxes, it can help um, it can help distribute housing a bit more equitably and those property taxes can go towards things like building even more housing. I can imagine a property owner hearing this and saying, hell no. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Let's go back a bit and just speak briefly about interest rates because you said that that is going to have an impact as well. Do you have a prediction on interest rates this year at all? So we're predicting mortgage interest rates will increase to 3.9%. We revised that up before we said it would increase to 3.6%, but we're already practically there. So we think there's a little bit more room to grow in mortgage rates. What's interesting though, is that we anticipated that this increasing mortgage rates would slow down demand. And now we're not so confident, especially because rents have gone up. There's like no place for somebody to hide from higher housing costs, which could cause sustained price growth in the housing market because people aren't going to shift over to the rental market as easily. I wanted to ask you about housing construction and um, the climate crisis. You know, a lot of the construction that we've seen is in single family. So, and also like build to rent housing as people have kind of gone out to the suburbs. You've spoken to the Federal Reserve about the impacts of climate change on the housing shortage. Do you think the kind of construction now that's going on um, might make some of the conditions of the housing crisis and the climate crisis worse? I'm thinking of things like reliance on cars, lack of dense housing, near transport. I mean, should, shouldn't we be maybe building differently? Yes, I do believe we should be building differently. A key example of this is in California, where the lack of dense housing in a city like San Francisco is pushing people to build more housing out in the forest where wildfire risk is the highest. And the housing that's going up there is typically single family housing. It's not energy efficient the way that dense housing is. We could do a lot to both reduce the risk, uh, both reduce carbon emissions by building dense housing and also reduce the actual fire risk to where people live by building more housing in climate resilient areas. That's another big reason we should be focusing on reforming zoning so we can make sure that there's enough housing in safe areas for everybody. Last question, are you feeling hopeful about 2022 and I guess society's ability to tackle these issues? So I think 2022 is going to be a very challenging year, but there's going to be a lot of change that happens. And that's what makes me a lot more that makes, that makes me more optimistic. The fact that the labor market is so tight makes me optimistic that people will be able to move to places where they have more economic opportunity and they'll be able to get employed and potentially afford a home down the line. But in the short term, we, we have not solved the affordable housing problem and we really need to get our heads around it. But perhaps the fact that it's starting to hit home for even upper middle class people that will motivate people to take it seriously. That's Daryl Fairweather. She's the chief economist at brokerage firm Redfin. You can read more of our stories about rent, multifamily and the housing crisis at biznow.com. I'll put some links into the program notes of recent pieces that we've done. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.